Welcome to the Stronger Business Podcast, where we discover how to get stronger together. What is up, entrepreneurs, business owners, and farmers out there today? We have an awesome guest on our episode, and and I'm just here to tell you, this is probably going to be the most intriguing conversation we have ever had on the Stronger Business Podcast. I'm super excited about what I'm going to learn today, an area that I'm not terribly familiar with, and I want to learn more that affects us all. Our guest today, man, he's been on Fox News, Joe Rogan, Good Morning America, Garden and Gun, the list goes on. He's an author, he's a businessman, he's an entrepreneur, he's a cattleman, a cowboy, a farmer. He he's he's specialized in an area and making a difference and doing some things that took a lot of courage and I'm excited to talk about today. He's the owner of White Oak Pastures, Will Harris. Welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you, Chad. I appreciate being here. I don't appreciate that introduction. You set the bar way too high, but uh, thank you for your kind comments. Uh, but it's uh, it's about it's, it's about ten percent of what you said. <laughs> well, well I, I feel like I, I undersold you by about 90% because there's a lot more uh, th- that you've done and been a part of and and what you're growing and doing. And it's just amazing. I mean, everybody right now needs to go check out White Oak Pastures website. Look at, you know, we're talking cattle, poultry, pork, rabbits, ducks, goose, guineas, turkeys, lamb, you, you, you all are doing a lot of different things out there in a much different way than what we're seeing right now, um, when it comes to livestock and it comes to farming and, and, and what I've learned from reading about you and listening to things you've been a part of, it hasn't always been the case. You, you made a pivot back in the nineties to, focus more on humane treatment of animals, sustainability, regenerative agriculture, some sort of organic farming pieces mixed in there. Um, give us a crash course a little bit and kind of tell us about White Oak Pastures, what all y'all do and how you got here. So White, thank you, thank you. And uh, White Oak Pastures is our family farm in Bluffton, Georgia. Bluffton is on the borderline between uh, Early County and Clay County, Georgia. Clay County was the poorest county in the United States of America in 2000, according to the economic. Uh, wow. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but uh, but it's, a, it's a great place to live and raise a family and farm, and I feel privileged to be here. White Oak Passage is our family farm, my great-grandfather, Founded it in 1866, followed by his son, my grandfather, followed by his son, my dad, followed by me, and now by two of my daughters and their spouses, and those two daughters have five children, five grandchildren on the farm of the sixth generation, although they have not contributed yet. (laughs) The daughters and and their spouses have contributed a lot. So... I guess uh, what I enjoy most about the farm is how uh, we we changed it in the excuse me mid nineties and been and been changing ever since. You know, the first two generations of my family that managed this farm farmed the way the pre World War II very uh, focused on the land, the community, the livestock, 
my dad uh, took over the farm post World War II and really industrialized it. That's that's what that's what you did right after World War II. Dad was born in uh, 1920, so he was 25 years old at the end of the war, and he really uh, uh, took it to a monoculture of only cattle. The only thing he raised was cattle instead of diverse species. He embraced all the science. He was, he was very progressive. He's a very good uh, cattleman. He did well. He, he was successful. Uh, all I ever wanted to do was do what he did. And I was born in 1954. I, uh, I went to the University of Georgia, graduated in 1976. I majored in animal science, and, uh, which was uh, very focused on the industrial commodity beef business. And all I wanted to do, I came home and did that for 20 years. And, and was successful with it. Uh, when I say successful, I don't mean we made a lot of money, but we paid taxes every year. I, I went back and looked. Uh, <laughs> we made we made money every year till I till I got the urge to change in the mid nineties, and then we had some pretty rough years, but it uh, it, it righted itself. Uh, but today, uh, instead of a monoculture of only cattle in a very reductionist manner. We raise, as you pointed out, cows, hogs, sheep, goats, rabbits, and poultry, and vegetables, and eggs, and uh, other income streams. Uh, the, the, probably, the, probably the thing that your audience, I see strong business, may be most focused on is the fact that when I was farming uh, industrially with cattle, you know, I had three or four employees, minimum wage kind of employees. Today, we've got 170-something employees that uh, make well above the, the county average. Uh, my payroll is $100,000 every Friday, whether I have it or not. And that is quite an economic impact in the poorest county in America. Man, no kidding. Talk about making a difference and having an impact. And and I think this is the the place for me as a business owner in doing one thing and trying to run one type of business and one type of service or product, managing 10 employees gets hard. Managing 170 employees with different varieties of animals and livestock and income streams. Did you see yourself when you left UGA headed back to, to Bluffton? Is that something you saw building some large, huge farm and business that was completely different than the generations before you? Oh, heck no. Uh, I, I did not envision that. And in fact, I was very aware that that was not going to be something I could do. You know, as long as I was raising commodity cattle as part of the industrial model, uh, that it was uh, very defined boundaries as to how much I could expand profitably. I mean, I guess you can expand in perpetuity, but if, if, you, if you don't have to make money, but we weren't, we had to make money. Sure. But, uh, but it was, um, it, no, no, very little of this was planned. <clears throat> in fact, I'll tell you this. So today, today my passion is the land, the animals, and this community. That's, that's all I care about, but I care about that a lot. Family's part of that. Family's part of the community. Right. Uh, 
when I started this, my focus was animals and the land. I didn't think anything about them in the community of Bluffton because it had been dying all my life. And it was fairly inevitable that it, it, it would go away. And, uh, <clears throat> but when I changed the way we farm, it put us in a position where I hired a lot of people and brought them in here. And some of them are local, but a lot of them came here to be here. And we, we have developed a nice little community. And I can remember the day somebody, uh, a visitor said, what a nice little town this is. And I, it surprised me. And I looked around and I said, it is, but it, it hadn't been. Uh, we, it, 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 it was the only three businesses in this town today is White Oak Pastures, a little seasonal peanut buying point that's open about eight weeks a year, and the post office is open about two hours a day. So, yep. it, but but it's it is a thriving little town now. It's pleasant. We've we bought every house that sold in the last. 15 or so years and fixed them up nice and put people in it. And I'm very proud of our community. I love for people to come and see it. And I, I like to hear them brag about it. I like to hear them see how nice it is. Man, that's so awesome to hear. And it just, that just ripples out sustainability all the way through that conversation. I feel like between the land and the farm and your family, the, the animals, the, rotation of of how you're farming now the community uh opportunity for other people to make higher wages i know that really connects for me as we were talking kind of pre-recording i grew up in hazelhurst georgia and the school system's really the number one and only real employer in the whole county there there is very very little opportunity very few jobs and and the opportunity to stay there uh, if you if you want to make a higher living or or you want to pursue something on a larger level is just really non-existent. So for you all to have you to have gone back and to be able to create that is man life changing for so many people and Austin here I I want to get it, I want to talk about the the profit side and and really where I'm going this is profit passion ethics like those things often just collide and and have inverse effects on each other. And you mentioned when you were monoculture farming with, with primarily cattle and specialized, the farm was profitable year over year, which I'm in the tax business. That's what I do. I, I work with a lot of farmers and seeing a farm profitable year over year is a little bit of a unique situation. So you were profitable in an industry and in farming when most people were not year over year to make that change. How big of a risk was that? And, and, what type of sacrifices were were you willing to lay out to be able to do that to pursue this, you know, real ethics and passion behind regenerative farming and in some of the direction you are you've taken it now? Well, it was more negative than courage involved <laughs> in the change. I'll tell you that. I, I didn't. Uh, I, I did not. I, I honestly, I'm not. I'm not proud of this, but honestly, I did not fully appreciate the economic financial risk I was putting our family business in when I made the change. As I you know, I was fortunate I, fortunate I inherited a, a thousand acres of land and a good herd of cows and a little, little bit of money, not a hell of a lot, a little bit. 
and we and we were good cattle people. We were multi-generational cattle people that were, were, were good at it. And we, we didn't make a lot of money, but with no no uh, interest, no debt, no interest, and uh, being good cow folks, and, and we made a little money every year. I, I mentioned that. We paid taxes every single year. I went back and looked, and I never had a year that I lost money. Some years we didn't make much, but the other years we did pretty good. Just a good little family business, nothing to boast about. And when I made up my mind to move away from that model, and there were reasons for that, I, I was naive in thinking that, you know, I, I can do this profitably. It'll be okay. And it, it was not. You know, we had some years we lost money. But our timing was absolutely so, so lucky. And I do mean lucky. I don't mean, I'm not being modest with that. It was just luck. But uh, we wound up uh, positioning ourselves in the grass-fed beef business. And I sold Whole Foods Market and Publix, the first pound of American grass-fed beef that they marketed as American grass-fed beef 20 years ago, maybe more than that. And we had some really good years. We, I don't mean, you know, I don't mean uh, Silicon Valley good, but for, for Bluffton, Georgia, we had some really good, good years and uh, enjoyed them and thought it would last forever. And uh, the money we made, thank goodness, I didn't key it away. We, we, uh, but I didn't keep it either. I bought land. I bought more land. We, I inherited about a thousand acres of land. I bought a little over a thousand acres of land. And that was a good investment in that land prices have gone up a good bit, but it was not a good, it was not a good investment for cash flow. You know, it just, you know, so, uh, uh, the, the really good days with uh, wholesale grocery did come to an end. Uh, they, they changed the law. The labeling laws, uh, so that uh, grass-fed beef could be imported but sold as product of the USA. It's a horrible thing, but uh, uh, big beef companies can legally import grass-fed beef from 20 countries: Uruguay, Australia, New Zealand, in three primary ones. And born cows that were born, raised, and processed in those other countries, brought in as chilled beef, can be sold as product of the USA because value has been added here. It's been ground or sliced, and it's legal. There's nothing I can do about it. But it really took the profitability out of my wholesale grass-fed beef business. And in fact, we ceased to do business with Whole Food Market last December 31st. They said I quit them. I said they dropped me. I, I don't know, but I, I know I, I know I got my last order uh, last year. So we had to find a different way to go, and we uh, uh, increased our online sales. And I think we're going to be okay with that. I'm not sure. But I think we are. Uh, we had a. My daughter came back here. I don't know, seven, eight, ten years ago, started the online business. We it just never caught traction. We, you know, we invested in it and we had it, 
but we'd sell maybe $2 million worth of product out of $25, million, $6, 7000000 we sold. And it wasn't profitable at that level. But during the pandemic panic, uh, it just went bonkers. And we sold everything we had, and and uh, we, we became aware that the wholesale business was waning. We focused on that. And this year, we're probably going to sell a little more online direct to consumers than we are wholesale. Thank you, Lord. And, uh, you know, I think that may be the answer for us. I think we may be okay. That's phenomenal and, and really awesome for everybody. Because when we start cutting out that middleman and we're able to go directly to the farmer and directly to the consumer, I, I feel like we know a lot more about where our protein or, or vegetables are coming from. And we're also able to get it potentially at a much more sustainable, better price point for everybody, which which I, I love. I think it's with technology, that's an awesome opportunity now to be able to do that from y'all's side and from our side. And that's one thing I want to talk about, which I think is so important to everybody in the world and certainly everybody listening here is the quality and the understanding of what's available out there uh, from a beef situation or, or a livestock protein situation um, of what's in the grocery stores and and what most of us are out there, most people are out there buying versus what you offer. I listened to you tell a story about feedlot cattle and how is tremendously an obese product is slaughtered early and probably has a three-year lifespan versus cattle on your farm is is harvested much different. It's a much lighter cow when it comes to processing, and it's got a 20-year-plus lifespan. Will you educate us a little bit on the product that we see most often versus what y'all offer uh, from White Oak? I sure will. And I'm not, I'm going to say this, uh, the, the comments I'm about to make, uh, I'm really not trying to disparage any system. I'm just telling you the truth about how the product is, is raised and, and, sure. and uh, processed. And, and consumers have got to decide for themselves what they think is important. And it, it's very hard to do that when you're buying product from a big multinational company that is moving food all over the world in huge quantities and they got really talented advertising people messaging the food in a way that's uh, pleasing to the consumer. So the, the system I advocate for is a much more localized production system and I think it's I think it's very important that people, consumers who care about food, know who their producer is and how they're doing it. Now you you don't have to know Will Harris personally and come to White Oak Pastures. You can if you want to, but with the internet, with uh, websites online, you can learn all you need to know about somebody pretty darn easy without visiting, although I do advocate business best. So, uh, and I'll say this, what I'm about to tell you, I'm about to tell you is uh, we sell beef in 48 states, sell product in 48 states, 
and uh, and, I, we, and I, we ship it to California and Oregon and Maine, and I don't want to. You know, I want to run a, a a regional business, and I want producers in those other geographies to have their own business and their own clientele and do well. But uh, currently, and, and we have moved our business a, a lot to the southeast. You know, I, I really wish I could just serve the deep south and nothing else, and somebody else do the other. But um, you know, uh, I used to be uh, a feeder, a, a feeder like guy, and I could I could get a, a calf at. 13 or 1400 pounds before they were two years old. 13 or 1400 pounds before they were two years old. And that calf would have spent uh, the last half of its life eating corn out of a trough, which is not a natural diet for a cow. It's like, it's like you eat marshmallows all day long, kind of that equivalent. And that creates an unnaturally obese creature that would never occur in nature. And Evidence of that is, and I have not done this experiment, but I fed enough cattle I know. If I, instead of slaughtering those animals at 18, 20 months, whatever it is, if you just kept them in there eating that same diet, they would not live long. They would die of obesity and all the diseases related to obesity that kill us. <clears throat> Conversely, the way we raise cattle, and not just us, other grass-fed producers. I'm, talk I'm not talking about just white oak pastures. I'm talking about us, the biggest. And <clears throat> the animals in a natural environment, out walking around on pasture, eating grass. It takes over two years to get them to 1,200 pounds. But if I, if I chose to give a, a pardon, a grant to those cattle, they live to be 24 years. 24 years is normal life expectancy of a cow. They live that long. So, you know, we have, if you, if you want a really tender piece of meat, that grain fed, prime grain fed beef is, is great. It's fine. It's what y'all eat. But you're eating an obese creature that was dying of all the diseases of obesity that will kill most of us. So, Consumers just got to decide what they want, which I think speaks to speaks to me because I I care about what I eat because I want to remain healthy because I want the longest lifespan I can have for my family for my community for my business uh, for my life and my experiences and so to think about the difference in eating beef with a three year lifespan versus eating beef with a twenty five year lifespan has to have some impact on us as human beings based on what we consume and how long we live. And that's, that's, what's just mind blowing to me. And I, I do think for, as a consumer, we got to have more of these conversations. We got to understand more about where our food comes from, ask questions and get educated in this because it, I, I do think our, our world is in a place where it's awesome to have sustainable food sources at all price points. And so no matter where you fall from an economics perspective, you can afford to eat. I think that's important, but I think we should also be educated in the pros and cons of what we're getting for what we are paying. And that's why it's so important for, for what y'all are doing and, and why there needs to be more opportunity for local grass fed beef and, and produce and different types of proteins, um, which really brings me to, 
to an interesting question around farming and, and around sustainability of this being an opportunity for other people. Um, I have a really good friend and client, he and his wife in the last year here, not too far outside of Athens, about 50 minutes away, just started a regenerative farm and a cattle and they're, they're moving cattle every day. And it's, it's been so cool to watch all this come to fruition. And I was talking to him last week and he's like, man, honestly, it's awesome, but it's way more work than I ever dreamed. And, you know, it's going to be such a higher price point for the beef than we thought is, is this a model that works for the young farmer for the startup 150 acre farmer, or do you really need 2000 acres to get away from specialized farming or to get away from the handful of companies where most of our food source is coming from right now? That's a good point. And I would say that, uh, you, it's amazing what you can do on five acres of land. You know, a couple can make a living on five acres, not with cattle. I mean, your cattle is not your, that's not your crop. Sure. But you've got to match your production model with the assets you've got to work with. And if you've got, you know, this water pastures today is about 5,000 acres. That's a uh, 1,000 uh, I inherited, 1,000 old, 1,000 I bought, uh, 1,300 I rent, and then the rest of it is solar land that I graze for uh, vegetation control. But it's a cattle or uh, cattle, sheep, and goats are fine for me because we, we have the land mass to do it. Uh, if a, if a, a young person or a couple has got three, four, five acres of land, they can make a living on that. And it's going to be vegetables and poultry and some, some of the uh, enterprises. <clears throat> and yeah, there are just a lot of choices to be made. This kind of farming is not nearly as stamped out uniform as the industrial model. You know, here where I live in South Georgia, <clears throat> virtually all the farmers grow corn, cotton, and peanuts, and nothing but corn, cotton, and peanuts. And, and it's fine. These are my friends and neighbors and relatives, and I love them. I don't love the program, but I, I love them. And, you know, I, I could argue that corn probably shouldn't be grown in Georgia. We grow it in Georgia because we've got this huge poultry industry in Georgia that can, that there's a market for it. But we probably shouldn't be taking the water resource and the, the other, other resources we grow for corn to grow poultry. But we do because we've got an industrial, uh, industrial poultry. Uh, operation to, to consume it. Uh, you know, I could talk a lot about cotton, I could talk a lot about peanuts, but you know, it, 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 the model is what it is. So if you're, and I agree with you, I, my dad, he switched to organic farming uh, probably about eight years ago. And really, I think you, you've been a part of Georgia Organics and the the president of the board there and George Organics was a huge resource for my dad and and learning and and developing and figuring out how to cultivate organically, you know, five to eight acres. And what I learned through that, which is completely contradicting to what I learned growing up in South Georgia, um, is on three acres of uh, organic produce farm. It's almost more than you can handle and more than you can sell and manage um, for a 
or a small mom and pop operation farmer and and you could it, it's profitable to an extreme level if it's done right and it takes one heck of a lot of work and and you've proven it's profitable on a large level so why aren't more people doing it why aren't we seeing more farmers and 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 young entrepreneurs that are interested in this kind of stuff adapting to that approach well, it's because uh, the, the, the big, the big uh, marketing efforts of bigger companies have thwarted what we do. You know, the, uh, I mentioned earlier the country of origin labeling that they, the, the big beef companies got changed so that they can bring uh, product in from the cheapest markets in the world to compete against what I do. Uh, you know, you, you mentioned vegetables. Uh, you know, if your dad's an organic vegetable producer, he's competing against uh, certified organic vegetables that are grown hydroponically in a in a in a greenhouse with, without ever touching the soil. And they can they can do that cheaper than your dad can do it out there on the farm. So uh, the consumer gets tricked in terms of what, what they're buying. And it, it puts a real limit on what we can do. I, if I were starting white oak pastures today, uh, I, I never would get it off the ground. Uh, I, it, it worked uh, in the late 90s, early 2000s, because the, the big industrial food business had not focused on the niche and started bringing in uh, foods that are probably probably less than what they're labeled to be. It may be a legal label, but they're less than what the consumer believes they're getting. So do you think we need stricter labeling laws or identification of what we're buying in the stores, or is it on us as consumers? Do we just need to do more research and education behind where our food's coming from? What's the... What's the answer? It's going to have to be on you as consumers. You know, the fact is, the big food companies, big ag companies have too much influence over our government to expect meaningful regulation on our food production. It's just the way it is. You know, as a, as a younger man, I made a lot of trips to Washington, D.C. and did a lot of things. I was, you mentioned Georgia Organics. I was president of that board for a long time. I, I really uh, put a lot of effort into getting the, uh, this misrepresentation of food handled uh, administratively. And I, I failed dismally. You know, we, we have, uh, Less big, big, big multinational corporations have more control over our food regulation today than they did <clears throat> 20 years ago when I when I was working on it, and I don't think that's going to get any better. Uh, I think that it's incumbent incumbent upon people who want to eat well to do their own investi- investigation work and find somebody that they want to support and support. It's, it's, it's hard, but it's, I think that's the way it's got to be. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I feel the same way. Um, and, and I think that's that should be important to us. And, and as consumers and as the general public, we should we should have and take that responsibility. It, not just when it comes to farming. When it comes to farming, 
or it comes to business, you, know, you have a lot of experience and have seen a lot of things and at White Oak Pastures. And as we look out across the, the business environment and, and the different companies and businesses out there in Georgia and in the South, do you think being focused on ethics and sustainability is an investment that eventually turns into more profit? Or is that something where we need to be sacrificing our profit and that's our being a good steward of our resources and community and, and what we're a part of? That's an excellent question. And I, I, don't, I don't know how to answer it. I can tell you that, uh, uh, you know, my, my beef probably costs 30% more than industrial beef. You know, if you told me it was 20 or 40, I wouldn't argue with you, but it's just something like that. My poultry is over 100% more than industrial poultry. There's, there's reasons for that. But uh, food raised right costs the consumer more. And the reason is because the industrial food had so much of its cost, shut it off somewhere else. You know, that that dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico is big. You know, they don't they don't they don't oyster there anymore. Apalachicola, they, they, you know, they don't have an oyster industry today. There, bro. You know that's because of industrial or agricultural runoff down the rivers, the Mississippi River in New Orleans or the Chattahoochee River, which I'm on here, taking uh, uh, pesticides and uh, chemical fertilizer down in the Gulf of Mexico and destroying that ecosystem. Well, the people that sent that chemical fertilizer and pesticide down that river aren't going to pay for that. All of us are going to pay for it. So, uh, and I can go on and on. There's this food that appears to be so cheap is artificially cheap. The cost cost of production or shut it off somewhere else. We, we can talk about it all day long. There, there are many, many examples. That, so, that makes sense, yeah. So, so uh, you know, it's, just, it's kind of like, how, how, you want, how do you want to pay for that? And you know, when I was a, a young man getting started, <clears throat> I believed I was an early innovator in changing the way we're going to produce food in this country was president of George Organics and part of the leadership, made a lot of trips to a lot of places to advocate for that. And I, I just don't know how it's going to turn out. It's not turning out the way I thought it would. There are so many consumers in this country who are ho hopelessly addicted to obscenely cheap food that I don't know that we're going to turn the corner. And so many huge multinational corporations making so much money on this damaging system that we're all supporting. I just don't know if we're going to make a change or not. Now, voluntarily. Now, sooner or later, the manure will hit the fan. And I don't know exactly how that's going to look, but it's not going to be pretty. And uh, I have shifted my focus from really trying to change the way the world produces food and eats to running white oak pastures for my 
family and 170 or so employees at our house. Uh, you know, we, we got to make, we got to make a profit to stay here, but we don't have to make much. You know, we long recover our costs and, uh, and, and we will continue to advocate for other folks. Uh, uh, we, we do things. Uh, I, 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 last year I started a, a nonprofit, a 501c3 called Center for Agricultural uh, Resilience. We hired a very sharp PhD executive director who runs it and we educate people. I was already doing some of that and I just couldn't afford to keep doing it. So we set up the foundation so that if people wanted to make donations, they could, we take that money and educate people because I, I wasn't reaching far enough with, with my efforts. Uh, I wrote a book uh, that'll be released the 10th day of next month, October 10th, called, uh, called A Bold Return to Giving a Down. Love it. And that's coming out next month? It's coming out next month. And, it? and it's by uh, Random House Penguin, you know, the, the, the big the big publisher and I'm uh if we if we sell 10 million copies we'll make about 100 bucks I'm not really excited about the profitability <laughs> of taxes <clears throat> but it is my effort towards this is the only book I'll ever write I give you my word on that deal but this gives uh yeah it, it's my effort to uh, help people producers and consumers understand uh, <clears throat> what the food production system was and what it has become and what it could be. Yeah, I think it's so hard to change habits. And I think right now we have, there's a lot of things lead to this broken system. And, and part of it is financial fundamentals of uh, not only are we not educating on food and and what we're eating and how we're approaching our health and sustainability of, uh, of the world and land we live on. Um, we're also not approaching financial fundamentals or financial education for, for people. And so not only are they spending everything they have on mostly unsustainable things and things that don't provide a whole lot of value to their life. Um, they're also spending it on things that's not necessarily the best option for them from a nutrition or health standpoint. And I think there's a, there's a lot of things that come back to education and as consumers, we gotta, we gotta educate ourselves more. We gotta find a way to, to fix it a lot earlier in the process of, of that. And man, it's a, I don't know, it's, it's interesting to see how things play out when, when you look at farming for the future, we've seen, we're seeing lots of changes right now and y'all, you have you seems to have you seem to have pivoted a lot of different ways and, and had the courage to go against the grain on different things and adopt things that most farmers and and especially farmers that are fourth generation farmers uh would ever do with technology and selling direct to consumer and things like that how is ai going to play into all this farming do you any idea what the future holds for some of this stuff? And is that a positive or a negative? You know, not, not many of us in this regenerative, humane space, production space, are my age with my background. You know, most, my, uh, most of my peers are, are a bit 
went to the University of Georgia College of Agriculture in my era, even, even going there now, are <clears throat> really conditioned for the industrial model. You know, the, the university gets <clears throat> so much of its funding from the, the industries that support industrial agriculture. So that's what's taught. Uh, so it's just a lot of the, the people that we have an internship program <clears throat> that we train people to farm this way. <clears throat> we accept six interns per year, or excuse me, per quarter, four times a year. 24 a year, every every quarter we accept six, we get 20-something applications. <clears throat> so there's, a, there's an appetite out there among young people to do this. <clears throat> now, getting it done is very difficult for the reasons I stated earlier. It's, it's, uh, uh, most of them come here with the idea that I'm going to white oak pastures and I'm going to learn how to do that in three months. And I'm going to get me some land, and I'm going to, to and, and a very, very few wind up doing it. Some, but very few. But a lot of them stay here with us. A lot of them going to work for other uh, regenerative farms in other parts of the country. And it's, it's, a, it's a good program. I like it. But I, I honestly don't, uh, don't know how this is going to work out. I don't think that we can continue to produce industrial commodity food uh, exclusively the way we do now in perpetuity. I don't think that's going to happen. <clears throat> I think it's going to end. I think it's going to end badly. I don't, I don't think that human beings will become extinct. But I think we'll have some really uh, hard times in terms of food production at some point in the future. And I don't think it won't be my generation. Probably won't be my children. Hope it's not my grandchildren, but I, it, it will happen. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. I think things have to change, and we have to figure out how to adapt and and continue to to educate and do so. I I, I think it's really awesome with with the demand for the intern program and and what y'all are doing there, and being able to again something that's not being taught at the university necessarily or being taught anywhere, bringing people in and being able to teach that and, and I guess flush out the people that think they want to do it, but, but don't in reality, once they understand what all goes into it and the work and effort and risk behind it, um, which is. We may be at the end of my time if we are you know, cutting this out, but <clears throat> earlier I started to get into this and chose not to, but now I, I think I need to get into it. So let's do it. So what, you know, what, what, what happened post-World War II is my dad's generation and then my generation and since also, and we turned this very cyclical business into a very linear business. <clears throat> you know, raising food the way we did it prior to World War II was very focused on the cycles of nature. You know, there's the, there's the energy cycle from the sun, the water cycle from the rain, the mineral cycle from the soil, the microbial cycle, many other cycles that are naturally occurring out there. And, and when it's working, those cycles are working optimally. They produce an abundance. And that abundance is wealth. And you know, all that coal and oil and gas in the, gr in the ground, that's when the, the cycles of nature were operating optimally during the time of the dinosaur. That's the kind of plus we can get out of it. 
post-World War II, we turned that very cyclical production system into something very linear. It's like a, like a, a factory. <clears throat> and it's monocultural, like a factory. So we grow corn in the cornfield and cotton in the cotton field and soybeans in the soybean field. <clears throat> and I don't think it allows us to do it more efficiently, but it allows us to move the cost off to some somebody else somewhere else. That's how we got into that conversation earlier. Sure, makes sense. And uh, the, the good news is you can undo that damage. I have undone that damage here. My land has gone from a half of a percent organic model to over 5%. That's a 10x increase in the last 20 years. <clears throat> the bad news is <clears throat> uh, it's expensive to do it. You know, it, it, uh, you lose production for some period of time. You've got to find these markets that will pay you the additional out-of-pocket cost of producing it. <clears throat> so, and those decisions have got to be made in an environment in which big food, big tech, big ag are putting out a lot of noise about how this is fine, like, like cigarettes in the 60s. They're fine. Smoke them. So, you know, I, I don't, I just don't know how this is going to work out. We, uh, we, we, we've encountered way more opposition in changing the way we produce food than I anticipated. When I compare it to the business world and as an entrepreneur, our numbers there, it's, it's not a recipe for success. Uh, everybody knows there's a 80% failure rate in the first five years of starting a business, which means for most people, they're risking everything, sacrificing their time, their money, um, their savings, they're going in debt at a, with a 20% success rate, which is insane. But we keep seeing it over and over. As as I look at farming and, and this type of farming, for a, for a new farmer, somebody that's interested in doing this, what do you think their chance of success is if they're willing to put in the work, if they're willing to put in education and trial and error to figure this out is do they have a high chance of sustainability, profit and success, or is it really stacked against them in a similar format as it is in the business world? Well, I certainly don't, I do not have those specs, but I, I would not be surprised if it weren't eight, it wouldn't be an 80% failure rate. And what's yeah. happening is, as I alluded to with my intern program, uh, not many people try it. You know, they, they, they come here. The, the interns we take here are not, I, I really, I do some, I really don't like to take just fresh out of college people. You know, I like to take people who have done done some stuff and figured it out a little bit, or figured out what they don't want to do a little bit. And uh, they come here with the idea that they're going to farm and, and figure out that, wow, I don't know if I can do this or not. And I'll be the first to admit that if I had done, tried today what I did 25 or 30 years ago, I would have failed dismally. And I had a lot of experience. So I had a lot of uh, equity in assets. <clears throat> and I was in, you know, I was a fourth generation doing it on the spot. You know, I, mean, I had a lot going for me, but I wouldn't have made it. You know, it was, the timing was, very fortunate for me. 
That's not like I'm trying to talk people out trying. That that is not my goal, (laughs) but I don't want to see them fail. So for those interns, is it just a hell of a lot more work than they think it's going to be, or is it just way more to learn? What's what's the factor that's really having them realize, hey, I don't think I want to do this anymore? No, I don't think it's the work uh, at all. I think that by the time we – the ones that we select to bring in as interns – you know, we've screened them enough to feel pretty good that they, they'll they do the work. Uh, it's just that they come to understand the economic reality that, ooh, this is going to be hard to make this work. Yeah. That, that know, makes... I, wish, I wish it weren't like that. I, I want to see a lot of people doing this kind of farming. Sure. Yeah, but I, I, I don't know that we're going to see it. I, the, consumer, you know, the consumer will decide. Yeah, that's what that's what I was thinking here when you were just talking is the consumer's gotta be willing to pay for it and the consumer's gotta be willing to find a lot more value in that and and really drive that market. I mean, in, in a world of capitalistic supply and demand, there's gotta be a demand for it. And and the in the business of farming, the price point has to make sense for both sides of it. And I think until we as consumers understand the true long-term cost to ourselves and our world of what's happening in the typical way of industrial farming and, and realize there's, there's a much better way to do this and we're willing to shoulder that and pay for it. It's going to be hard for things to change. And there are, there, there are consumers out there that will do it. And, and, you know, I feel like my farm here is going to be okay. I mean, I think we'll, have enough people that will buy enough stuff from us that we'll be, and we've got enough uh, equity and uh, our assets and small enough debt load that we'll probably be okay. I'm not sure, but I think we will be. <clears throat> enough, I, enough that I allowed my children to come back into it. I wouldn't have if I thought it was going to fail. Yeah. But, but, you know, I've got a 30-year head start on most of these people. And, and I think because of people like you, we're going to see more of that change, doing things like this, educating more and more people, being willing to write books, being willing to be on TV shows, on podcasts, sharing your time, which is extremely valuable in an operation the size that you have, uh, you taking time, being willing to share your story and share your passion is, I think, what's going to help propel that change and that education for all of us. And I just... I think this is the answer of having conversations like this. And we, when we started this episode, I, I, I told our listeners this was going to be one of the most interesting conversations we've ever had on this podcast. And I believe we lived up to that. Not only has it been interesting, it gives us a lot to think about and what we're allowing, what we're buying, what we're paying for, what we need to be understanding and researching and taking time to think about and things we consume and things we're doing as business owners, entrepreneurs, farmers, the sustainability and the passion and ethics behind why we got into doing what we do. And it's, it's not just a spreadsheet or numbers or profits. It's, you know, it's way more than that. And there's a cost to everything. And we got to make sure we don't sacrifice what's more important or, or, or the, the long-term sustainability of things for the short-term profits. And I think this, this conversation has been amazing for really opening up our minds and understanding some of that. Um, this is this is my favorite part of the episode, Will, where 
we get to share even more valuable information with our audience. This is the max out moment of the Stronger Business Podcast. And how I kind of like to wrap things up here is, is asking you, man, you have a ton of experience. You've had the courage to change and pivot and and take risk and make sacrifices that most people would have been scared to death to do. And and you've seen a lot of success for your family and, and what you're doing there. And I'm sure there's a thousand pieces of advice you could share. But if we narrow that down and say, hey, what's if we leave our audience with one thing today, um, one tip, one tactic, one piece of advice, one thing to go do or think about, you know, what's your max out moment that we want to wrap things up with today? <clears throat> we have a lot of young people here. Uh, on the intern program and, and, and other situations, other, other education situations. And I meet so many people. Now, I'm not talking about kids right out of college. I'm talking about people maybe your age, you know, 30s, 40s, that are really, really successful <clears throat> on the surface in jobs that they really, really don't find fulfilling. And I don't think that's fine. You know, I mean, I would like to say, well, that's fine. That's what they want. I don't think that's fine. I think that it's kind of a sellout to do, to, to, to spend your life in a pursuit that you're not passionate about <clears throat> just because it's a little easier or a little less risky or you might make a little more money. I think it's just a a tremendous sacrifice to, to make. That is an amazing max out moment. And I think that it, that connects with a lot of people that are out there in a job or in a business or following or pursuing something that's mm -hmm. what they think they should do, or their parents told them they should do or where they can make the most money. And it's not something they love or passionate about or not something that has meaning to them. And so Man, that is that is advice that should really connect and and something for everybody to think about as we as we go into this weekend and and really just evaluate things that are important to us and our passions and our purpose and mm -hmm. everything from our careers to our families. Well, that is an awesome, amazing way to end this episode. Um, for our listeners out there, for our followers, if they want to connect. If they want to shop with you guys, wideoakpastures.com, is that the best place to connect? It is. It is. And we, uh, <clears throat> I invite you all to come see us and visit us and get to know us. We, uh, <clears throat> we, we, we built a, uh, no, we didn't build it. We got a store that was, uh, the general store here in town had been closed. It was built in 1880 something. And we, Say <clears throat> so we have a restaurant. We've got lodging. We've got cabins. We've got horseback riding. We got there's a, there's a number of things going on, and we invite you to come here and do all of it, or come here and do none of it. But we do would like to have you come here. Well, it sounds like one heck of an awesome experience to come down there and spend a little time with you all. And man, I just really appreciate what you're doing, and have just a tremendous amount of respect for the courage and everything it, it took to make those changes and go against uh, a lot of other stuff that's happening out there and appreciate your time today and joining us on the podcast and man, just really look forward to following shopping and connecting more in the future. Thank, thank you for having me, Chad. I enjoyed talking to you. 
Same here, man. And for all of y'all out there, connect with White Oak Pastures, connect with Will, follow this journey, this story, and and really take that max out moment to heart and evaluate the purpose and passion and what you're doing every day and and make sure that aligns with who you want to be and how you want to live your life. And follow us, go to strongerbusiness.com, connect, uh, share this episode with anybody you think it'd be impactful um, for, and we'll see you next week. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the Stronger Business Podcast. We're excited to come to you again next week with more tools and tactics to help you get stronger in your business and in your life. Check us out on Instagram at Stronger Business or follow us uh, on our website at StrongerBusiness.com. Have an awesome rest of your day and we'll see you next week.